Now, we're moving through the gospel of Matthew. We're going to continue that. Uh, But before we jump in, I just want to ask you a question that is maybe prompted by what we're talking about today. I want you to think about one or two things that if they happened, would make your life or this world better. One or two things, if you could say, if this could just happen, my life would be a lot better. Or this world would be a lot better. Or America would be a lot better. What would it be? Trump? Hillary? Gary Johnson? A natty for the University of Oregon? What would it be? Seriously, what would it be? Ending ISIS? That's a good one. Uh, unconditional love. Ending ISIS would be one where way up on my list. Uh, there's a text. It's one of my favorite. I'll read it for you. It says this. It's Isaiah chapter two. This is what we have to look forward to. Listen to this. It shall come to pass. It shall come to pass. Did you get that? It shall. This is God. It shall come to pass. In the latter days, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations, all the nations, whatever nation you don't like right now, all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And here's the key. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's a happy, happy time. And God says, it shall come to pass. I'd say that's way up my list. The stop of abuse of children, way up my list. Stop of rape and torture and murder and adultery. Those are way up my list. I think of how much pain is confessed to me when there's sexual sin. Oh, if we could just get rid of some of those things. So that's, that's kind of global. But then you even think about like what for me personally, like what would make my life personally better? Maybe to move to a new house. Maybe you have cultivators as neighbors. It's starting to get hard. <laughs> Maybe just shalom in your home. You've got teenagers and it's like, if I could just have peace in this place. Maybe it's to live joy. Maybe it's to stop some kind of habit or start some kind of a habit. There's all this kind of stuff you can explore. Like, what would I say would make my life or this world a better place? What's interesting is Jesus actually explores this topic, and it's where we're at today. So grab your Bible, and I'm going to try to be short. I know it's hot, but it's a really great chapter. Phenomenal. So I've got to pick up some background before we get to what we want to talk about. Um, Because what's happening in chapter 22 is Jesus is being interrogated by people that want to kill him. All right? So if you knew someone wanted to kill you, 
and, and Jesus is in the temple and you met them at church, how would that make you feel? They're like, hey, what's up? You might feel a little bit like, uh, what are you doing here? You want to kill me? Are you following me? So that, there is this, there's this antagonism right now. And I'll kind of pick up, you can pick up part of it in this text I'm going to read. So Matthew 22, verse 23. And this is midstream. Wednesday, we'll get the whole thing. But this is midstream in this interrogation attack of Jesus. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her, right? One bride for seven brothers. You could make a movie. (laughs) So there's this hypothetical question placed. Look at the response of Jesus. Verse 29, but Jesus said to them, you are wrong (laughs) because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Essentially, here's Matt Heavily translation, you're stupid. That's what Jesus says to him, you're stupid. Why? Because this, this is a fairy tale. There's an extra canonical book called the book of Tobit where this story comes. And so they're, they're reading fairy tales, if you would, and they're bringing fairy tales to Jesus and he's just done with it. At this point in this interrogation, he's done with it. Are you kidding me? This is childish. It's like asking me like about Superman and Batman and Robin and they're all fighting and Superwoman jumps in. Who has the better cape? Jesus is like, it's childish. Come on, it's Batman, of course. So there's this, there's this you can see, you can feel the angst. So Jesus answers, verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read... What was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. We'll talk about eternity on Wednesday. But Jesus says, you're you're clueless about the renewal of all things, about the new heavens and the new earth, about eternity. You're clueless. Okay, so there's animosity, right? You can feel that. Now, Now look at this, verse 34. But when the Pharisee, this is another group that's anti-Jesus, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Different answer there. In fact, if you read Mark, he talks about this same story. It says that Jesus said to this man who asked the question, you're very close to the kingdom. It's super, super positive. So Jesus goes from this, hey, you're stupid, 
Why are you asking that to, hey, bro, that's a great question. And you are really, really close to the kingdom with those kind of questions. Jesus loves this. And he gives an answer. You know, we're, we're, we're the same kind of people today, aren't we? We always want to know, what's the greatest movie of all time? What's the richest man who's ever lived, right? Who's the greatest Olympian? Is it Michael Phelps? Or is it that dude from like 2,000 years ago, Leonidas Rhodes, who supposedly finally got his record broken after 2,065 years or whatever? Who's the greatest? We always are wanting the the top, the greatest. This guy's doing the same thing. I've read the Bible and there's tons of commands, right? The first command is, hey, Adam and Eve, go make some babies. Second command is, hey, subdue this world. Third command is, when you get married, leave and cleave. There's just tons of these commands throughout the Old Testament. And this guy wants to know what's the most important one. What's the big one? What's the top one, right? So Jesus then says, these two are it. Love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two, depend, or you could say balance all the law and the prophets. Every bit of revelation up to this point, the law, which is the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, which is essentially the rest of the Bible, all of it depends on these two. All of it balances, all of it finds its sink in these two commands. That's pretty radical. That's simplified. I like simple things. Don't give me all the 613, give me two. I like that. But if you begin to look at these commands, what you find is, how do you actually do that? What does it mean to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? What's the difference between my heart and my mind, right? How do I love God with my heart? How do I love God with my mind? How do I love God in these ways? So if you really begin to explore it, it's actually a little bit complicated. It's like, what does this mean? And people begin to explore, like, what does it mean to love God? And so the ancients thought, you know what loving God means? It means grabbing a virgin and throwing her into a volcano, right? There's a lot of that. In fact, most old religions thought of God as angry and you need to appease him. So the way that you loved God was doing something very hard. Is that still in us today? Is there a bit of that in our mentality when we think about God to this day, where we think what I need to do is I need to appease God somehow by a sacrifice or by pain? I had a good friend about 20 years ago. Both of us were on fire for Jesus. We were just trying to chase Jesus and really get the most out of life. And so we just kind of fire questions back and forth and and we were interacting a lot. And and it was wintertime one year and he pulled up in his truck. It's this old Chevy half-ton truck. He pulls out, it's a freezing cold morning, and he just got, comes out of the truck, and he's like, oh, man, I'm freezing. And so I said, well, why, bro? Did your, did your heater break? He said, no. I said, well, what are you doing? He said, God doesn't want me to use my heater. <laughs> and I said, why not, man? What are you talking about? Is God, like, angry? Is he like, when I send a cold front, I want people cold. <laughs> you are defying me, hell for you. What is it? And the guy said, no, 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 no. He said, God's preparing me for something. I said, what? North Dakota, dude? You're nuts, man. I can't hang out with you anymore. But isn't that in us? There's a little bit of this, oh, God wants me miserable. Loving God requires me to go to Tanzania and eat bugs. 
It's in all of us. There's this little bit of that still lingering. Oh, we don't throw virgins in volcanoes, but we still have in us this, well, if I'm going to make God happy, it's got to hurt me. C.S. Lewis wrote a great, great lecture on this, or essay, I should say. And I'll just give you a little quote from it that summarizes, I think, where that came from. Listen to this. It's Lewis. It says this, quote, If there lurks in the most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is not part of the Christian faith. Who here knows about Immanuel Kant? Okay, philosophy lesson right here. Immanuel Kant was a guy that said, duty is king. Like dutiful people are the best people. So I'll give you an illustration that comes from him. He said this, it is better for a man to stay married to his wife out of duty than to stay married to his wife out of love and passion. All right. So that would look like this. You come up to me and you ask me, Matt, How's your marriage? And I look at you and I say, well, to tell you the truth, that woman sucks the life out of me. But I made a promise. And for the rest of my long, long life, I'm in. Right? Kant would say, you are a stallion. Versus the dude that's like, man, I just love my wife. It's so much joy. Going home is awesome. No, he says that, that's king. So, Immanuel Kant has had this influence on Christianity that that C.S. Lewis says has crept in. And so we start thinking it's better to be miserable than to enjoy ourselves. And so he finishes, and here's the part that everybody knows. There's your philosophy lesson, Kant, duty. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, end quote. I love that. No. God doesn't want us miserable. Jesus says, I've come that you might have joy and you might have that abundantly. So we have these notions that are incorrect, that, that we got to throw a virgin in, we got, can't use our heat or whatever, but we're still left with the question of what does it mean to love God with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul? How do I actually walk that out? Or how do I love my neighbor as myself? What does that look like? So if I love jalapenos on my burrito, do I always put jalapenos on my burrito, on burritos when I make them for someone else, right? What does it look like if I'm suicidal? <laughs> How do I love my neighbor as myself? Do I kill him? I mean, you just got to start kind of walking some, just, you, you got to go to the extremes, right? To really understand like, okay, how do I actually walk this thing out? What does that mean? How do I love my neighbor who is a major marijuana grower and he's doing it illegally? How do I love him as myself? How would I want to be treated if I was the major marijuana grower and I was doing it illegally? 
How do I love my neighbor who has some serious property lines disputes with me? How would I love him as myself? Walk those things out. It's not as easy as it sounds. It's actually profoundly complicated. So these two commands, you can just get lost in them and you can think about them. And there's a lot I wanted to do. And then I kept looking at the weather. So I'm gonna do one thing today and that's it. I think fundamentally in America, here's the problem we have. Our problem is with the word love. So 2016, America, what does love mean? We have all these different things that we think we love, right? Sometimes it's a feeling, like it's passion and it's excitement and and, and it's a feeling. So we say, man, I love her, I love him, right? It's love, that. But sometimes it's a casual preference, right? I love my Volkswagen bus, right? That's just a preference. You guys don't, and I understand why people wouldn't, right? But I do. Like, I love the Oregon State Beavers. No one else does, but I will stand alone, right? It's my preference. I love trout almondy and a light Dijon mustard sauce. Who wouldn't? It's delicious, right? So, there's, so we, we use this word for just casual preferences. I love cilantro. Who here hates cilantro? Raise your hand. Amen. Amen. Here's what I found about cilantro. Cilantro divides America in half. There's no middle ground, right? It's like Republican and Democrat. Like either you love cilantro or you hate it. There's no like, oh, you know, I'm okay with it. It's funny. It's one of those things. So, you know, it's, it's a preference then. I love cilantro. I hate cilantro. So we have, part, part of it is like, okay, it's a feeling. Sometimes just casual preference. Like, well, I prefer this thing over something else. But it also means commitment. Like I love my wife. I love my kids. It means what? I'm committed to them. So what is love then? What does it actually mean? Jesus says, fundamentally, if we're going to balance, if we're going to get our world in sync, then you've got to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there's really a complicated thing right there, and we don't understand what it means to love. So I want to do one thing today. I want to do a flyover of love because the Bible does not leave us without the answer. So flip, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to start trying to figure out what it is. Is love a preference, right? It's I prefer God because the option is Satan. And I don't want that. Is love a commitment? Is love a feeling? Well, we can figure it out real quick. So a 30,000 foot flyover, 1 Corinthians 13 if you want to just read a great chapter, read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Like it is so magnificent. It's like, it's unparalleled to me in, in its beauty. All I'm going to read though, on a hot day, is verses four through eight. So listen to this, listen carefully to this. Here's your definition. Love, and it's the Greek word agape. It's a certain kind of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love 
never ends. Isn't that brilliant? And what you see is there's a division between what love is and what love is not, right? It's like there's a grouping. Love is this and it is not this. So love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. Love rejoices with the truth. That's what it is. But then on the other side, love is not envious or jealous. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It's like there's this division. You have the is and you have the is not. Now, who defines love in these terms? Notice it's not a feeling. It's not really even a commitment. It's not a casual preference. What is it? What are all these things? They're actions. Are they not? Being kind is an action. Being jealous is an action. Being envious is an action. Being resentful is an action, right? Bearing with somebody, enduring with somebody, that's action. It's not preference. It's not even commitment. It's action. Love acts. And love doesn't act certain ways. That's what it does. So here's all I want to do. I'm limited. I'm outside. I want to paint two pictures for you. And I want you to consider these two pictures this week, this month, this year. Because one picture will tell you what love isn't. And then one picture will tell you what love is. And you can very quickly determine, what am I doing right now? Which one of these pictures am I painting? Because each picture will paint a very different life for you. Okay? So the first picture, and I heard it explained like this, and it was so helpful for me. The first picture I want to paint for you is that of a black hole. Does everybody know what a black hole is? Okay, so black holes, they're called the event horizons. They're, they're a very unique thing that, that scientists believe, pretty sure, exists in our solar system. So um, there's gravity. There's always gravity between everything. Do you know that? So there's, there's an attraction between me and you guys right now. Uh, um, you, you, if you really want to see gravity between people work well, just look at teenagers. It works really well between them. There's an attraction, right? So the bigger you are, the greater the attraction is, all right? So I heard black holes explained like this, and I've never forgotten it. Uh, physicists talk about space like a big sheet, okay? So let's say this black tarp here is space, and I go up on top of this roof right here and I take about 50 golf balls and I just kind of throw them up here and they kind of scatter around and they settle. Will they, do, will they indent the tarp very much? No, just a little bit. But if I go up there and I take up with me a big golf cart and I throw it on, and I totally could, I throw it on here, <laughs> what's gonna happen? It's gonna make a massive divot inside of this tarp, right? It's gonna go all the way to the ground. What is gonna happen to all the golf balls? They're gonna get sucked into that divot. That's a black hole. A black hole deforms space in such a way that anything that gets close to it just gets sucked into it. And what happens in a black hole is this. It actually, black holes take apart the very molecular structure. So atoms, which are made of electrons and protons and neutrons, are actually disassembled. Black holes decreate. They destroy. 
Whatever comes into them, they actually take it apart at the very electronic, atomic level, and it becomes nothing. It just gets squished in and becomes more and more dense and stronger and stronger and stronger, and they destroy everything in their path. That's what love isn't. It's all these isn'ts. It's not envious. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It's, right? That's, it's all the isn'ts is a black hole, okay? When I think the entire world is to revolve around me, where everything is to serve me, where everything is going to be to make me happy, what I become is all the isn'ts. I become envious of anyone else's good fortune. Why them and why not me? I become boastful. I want everyone to know how great I am. Look at the giant black hole that I am. I want everyone to realize that this world is to serve me. I rejoice in bad things. I become very irritable. If anyone is going to try to escape from my orbit, I get mad at them. Why aren't you making much of me? Why aren't you telling me how great I am? And what eventually happens to you in that space is this, you become angry. And if you know anger, anger is a derivative emotion. It means this. It's not like a pure emotion, like laughter. It means something in your life is wrong and you're reacting to that wrongness and the reaction is anger, right? And in this case, it's bad anger. It's anger where you're, why aren't people making much of me, okay? So what happens when we live those kind of isn'ts is we actually destroy everything around us. We're just like a black hole. We undo the Imago Dei. We undo God's creation. We undo God's goodness. We undo God's plan because we're all these isn'ts. So that's the first one. Black hole destroys. The second picture, the is is, is a bacterial, bacteria cell. You guys remember biology, right? The cell is the very basics of what makes up all living things from the amoeba to the bacteria to the plant to me to you to your dog to your cat all made up of cells. If you know bacteria, though, bacteria exist for one thing. They actually exist to push out all that they are, to give up part of themselves, a lot of themselves, actually half of themselves, and what do they try to do? Make another one, right? That's the whole process of a bacteria cell. It just wants to make more. It wants to say, it's not about me. Actually, it's about me giving myself away, and I'm now creating more. There's more. Instead of one, now there's two. The entire purpose of bacteria bacteria is to reproduce itself. It gives up all of its energy, all of its time to give itself away, and it makes more of itself. To me, that is the very definition, the very picture of love. Love is a attitude of action that you say, life is not about me. Life is about me giving myself away to produce, and to give to other people. So John 3, 16, the very classic gospel verse says this, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave himself away. That is what love is supposed to be. Love is supposed to be that, that a bacteria goes from one to two to four to eight to 16 to 32 to 64 to 128 to 256 to 512, to 1024, to 2048, to 4096. I could keep going, but I don't want to boast. 
right? That's what, that's what bacteria does. It, it creates more. Love, when love is being patient and kind and rejoicing in truth and bearing and believing and hoping and enduring and not ending, what it does is it says, I am pushing out my entire life to create, to give to others, to see them do well. And it's beautiful. And Jesus says, when that happens, the world balances, that it's in sync, right? When I am patient, what am I saying? You get my time. You are so important that I'm giving away the one commodity that I can never get back. You can never retrieve time. I'm giving away the one commodity I cannot get back because you are worth it. It's not about my timeline. It's about how can I be, be patient with you? And I'll tell you, there's no way to learn patience like being a parent because kids do not work on your timeline, right? Go to bed. I want to surf the internet. Come on, right? It's this, and you, really, you feel these tensions in it. Like, whoa, okay, you're asking something for me. Kindness is what? I am extending to you my hospitality. I'm extending to you my essence. I'm giving you something, which is my kindness, right? Rejoicing in the truth is, man, I'm so happy for you. It's like all the is's create something that's beautiful and right. I'm never gonna give up on you. I'm gonna hope and I'm gonna believe and I'm gonna endure with you even if you're a black hole. I'm gonna keep doing that. Best example of this is a mom with a son who's on drugs. Moms do this. They endure, they bear, they do not give up. They demonstrate love in a way that I think is exemplary. I'm not giving up. They're my son. They still have the Imago day in them and I will not give up. You will not wear me out. I will still answer the phone when you call. That's love. It's beautiful. It's right. And so a couple of Wednesday nights ago, I was sharing about kind of this topic. And I said, if you want to be miserable, be a black hole. Make the whole world about you. Make everything about you. You're just going to be miserable. You will be the greatest enemy to your joy you ever imagined because you destroy it. You take apart the thing that you want, right? Everything becomes about you. And when it's not, you're irritable, you're resentful, you're angry. But if you'll just simply get this, the point, it's not about me. It's not about me. I'm going to lose my life so I can find it. I'm going to take up my cross and start to follow, denying myself, take up my cross and start following Jesus. What happens is there's this brilliant thing that happens. Everything works better. You're a better husband because your wife's not your slave, right? You're a better parent because you go to the soccer game and you enjoy the soccer game. Instead of being like, son, represent, come on. Everyone needs to know what kind of people we are. The DNA you have in your veins, right? I mean, give me a break. He's a five-year-old, right? If they don't pee themselves, it's a win. Go for pizza, for crying out loud. But you can't when you're a black hole because everything revolves around you and everything has to serve you. And this world doesn't work like that. And when it's out of sync, you just destroy the good things that God has for you and me. So I want you to ask yourself, this past week, have I been a black hole? Or have I been a bacteria cell? What have I been? Have I been expecting things to revolve around me and draw into me and serve me and demanding that? Or have I been the kind of person that says, I'm going to take all that's been invested in me and I'm actually going to push it out to see more created, to see better things come? Which one have you, which one have I been? 
Which one? It's a hard question. Let me reread verses four through eight in a little different way. And just think through this last week. Verse four. Who this week have you been impatient with? Who this week have you been unkind to? Who this week have you been envious or jealous of? How have you boasted this week? How have you been arrogant? How have you been rude? How have you insisted on your own way? How have you been irritable? Have you been resentful? Have you rejoiced in wrongdoing and not rejoiced in the truth? Have you given up? Have you stopped believing? Are you hopeless? That's black hole stuff. Now, who in here would say, you know what? 100% on that one, Matt. I do it all right. All 16 qualities, check them off. Okay, if you're saying that, then you just broke, you just rejoiced in wrongdoing. So welcome to the rest of us. Everyone's going to say, that is a hard, hard, hard text. If I really thought about my week, that is impossibly hard. Where did Paul, the author of 1 Corinthians, where did he get this ideal from? Can you imagine? Jesus. Jesus did this. This is how Jesus lived. And so this text is not to lead us to despair, like, oh, it's impossible, or to denial, ah, you know, whatever. uh, I'm good in all these other areas, so it pans out. And it's not to lead to either of those things. It's actually to give us hope. Because Jesus, here's, here's what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus took away the gravity of the black holes. He destroyed it. That self-seeking, self-serving thing that's in all of us, on the cross, Jesus killed that gravity. And now he invites us, step out of the darkness, step into the light, and become part of my family. And Jesus says something I think is phenomenal. It's John 15. He says this, the Father loves me. I have loved you. Now you go love other people. See, we're not left on our own to do this. It'd be impossible. Jesus says, when you come to me, when you step out of your black hole, when you start start figuring it out, like, I don't want to be a black hole anymore. And you step into my love, what happens is you get in this flow of love and you become a conduit of it because you are so loved, because you are treated so well. What happens is all the gravity that used to demand your own thing is removed. It's demolished. And all of a sudden you can step out and you can become a cell, if you would, in his body, supplied by his strength. We attach to the vine, if you would, and we get the strength of his ability to love. And then you're no longer destructive. You're no no longer having to grab everything and tear it apart for your own good. You start saying, man, I want to be like Jesus. I want to give myself away. I want to find purpose and meaning in that. That's what he invites us to do. And when we do that, it's an amazing thing that happens. When you really allow the gospel to transform the way you see this world, you naturally cease being a black hole and you start simply becoming bacteria, a cell in the body of Christ who serve a much bigger mission and have a much better empowering of God's spirit to produce this kind of life. And when we do, the byproduct is super simple. It's joy. The fruit of the spirit is love and joy. The next byproduct, when we're that, we actually enjoy life. Because when you're a black hole, it's dark and all you see is yourself. 
my needs, my thing, my life, me, 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 me. That's miserable. When you step out of that and you join in with the body of Christ and really say, I want to become something different. I want to become somebody that is able to love God with my heart and my soul and my spirit. And I want to love my neighbor as myself. Your byproduct is always joy. So here's what we're going to do. We have communion today. I want you to grab it. If you don't have it, raise your hand. I took advantage of the shade. It's not that bad, is it? No, it's nice. Yeah, no, I'm in the shade. I'm right in the middle right here. So raise your hand if you don't have it. In 1 Corinthians, communion is talked about, and it's talked about like, hey, you guys are abusing this thing, you're sick. And so a lot of people get afraid of it from that. But if you read that text real carefully, you shouldn't be afraid. Because I think the opposite is just as true. That when you take communion the way it's supposed to be taken, the church fathers called it the elixir of life. That it brings you life. That when we remember Jesus allowed his body to be thrown into the black hole of sin and death to be torn apart so that we would never have to be in that black hole. That he demolished the black hole with his body. When you remember that love, that sacrifice, when you know that it was done for you, what happens is the gospel becomes the power of God to save you from yourself. Romans 1.16. So I just want you to take one minute and I want you to pray something real simple. If this last week you feel like or this last year, or the last 20 years, <laughs> you've like, man, I've just been a black hole. And I've been destroying relationships around me, people around me, my life, and I'm miserable. I want you to have hope. Jesus came to give us hope, not to destroy us. I want you to take the body, and I want you to say, Jesus, this day, I want to abide in your body. I want to be given strength to be a fruitful cell in your body. So take a moment and pray that. Jesus, there's such mystery in communion. But I think there's such power in it. And so I pray this morning as we partake in your body that was cast into the black hole of sin and death and torn apart for us. I pray for myself, Lord. I pray that you would forgive me where I've stayed in my own blackness and my own hole demanding my way. And that, Lord, your invitation to come out into life this day would be accepted by me. And I'd be reconnected to you in strength that I would be a cell in the body of Christ receiving strength. Let's eat together.
And Father, we celebrate the truth that 2,000 years ago, the decisive act of love was accomplished. That on the cross of Calvary, the earth twisted, the universe shifted, and the renewal of all things began. And one day, as Isaiah, the prophet, heard from you, one day, swords will be beaten into plowshares. Spears will be turned into pruning hooks. Nation will not study war anymore. There will be love of God and love of neighbor throughout our entire cosmos, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that we would right now, by the power of your blood, be a community of believers that live like that. Instead of making enemies, we'd make friends. Instead of keeping score, we'd forgive debts. Instead of living like black holes, we would live to give ourselves away because we are members of this community and we're part of the renewal of all things, Lord. So I pray for anointing upon Edgewater Christian Fellowship this morning to walk out of this place as kids of the kingdom, reproducing the joy and the love that you've given to us. And so may we drink strength and power, I pray. Let's drink together. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.